at the moment when that change occurred, it was there's been a change of Prime Minister and a change of agenda. Can this defy the nine-year rule? Leadership had many interpretations. You reach out, you step forward, you step up, you solve problems. Every leader, I'm sure, gets caught in moments of history, although I tended to have my fair share of them. D did I want the job? Um, I was not a child who grew up saying, I'm going to be Prime Minister. But I, every day I was a leader long before I went into politics. I often say to people, the Prime Ministership doesn't define Jenny Shipley. It is a cloak I wore. I was a leader. I led. I believe in leadership, not political occupancy. I called um, Bill Birch uh, when I had the numbers and said, Bill, I need you to know that on Tuesday uh, I'll be putting a challenge for the leadership on the table. And by the way, I have the numbers. The farm girl in me was extremely clear that day because I had said I would not disrupt the media. We could do this one of three ways. We could go to Tuesday or if there was any dispute and any malicious behavior, I would go downstairs and call a press conference and demonstrate I had the numbers uh, because I had them and, and literally triggered or we could do it appropriately. And uh, a number of colorful personalities threw toys in all directions that evening. But Jim Bolger never asked me to show him the names because I think he knew that the numbers were there. And in the end, he and I had a private conversation in what was a very sensitive circumstance. And it's a, a conversation I value to this day, uh, but it was what I would hope and expect from the National Party as two leaders who in a moment in time realized that they had to make something work both publicly and personally. Just how does it feel being part of something like that? It's what leaders do. Take power. Fulfill your obligation to deliver what people expect. I did not wake up every morning thinking I'm going to take power from Jim Bolger. I woke up every morning weighed down with the sense of obligation of can I and will I do this because there was such a high level of expectation on me. Why did you want the job? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I, I, did I want the job? Um, it had become inevitable. Which sounds odd, but it had become inevitable. That places you as a bystander, which I find no, 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 difficult no, 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 to accept. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm not a bystander. When I say it was inevitable, it was that my leadership skills and my drive and my ability to bring people with me would be used. On the night of December 7, 1997, Jenny Shipley and her team rode the lifts to the Beehive's ninth floor to meet with Jim Bolger, the final steps in a meticulously planned coup. The next day, Shipley became New Zealand's first woman Prime Minister. Already a divisive figure due to her role in the health and welfare reforms of the early 90s, Shipley has seldom talked about her two years in power, but her path to the top started at home. Well, I was raised in an all-girl family and you did everything and people expected you to succeed and, and I expected myself to succeed and I had our first child, Anna, and she was beautiful and straightforward and easy and 
I, I thought we'd have a dozen of them and uh, Benjamin uh, was a very difficult birth and very life-threatening. And after that, because of that, I had several days where I didn't, wasn't able to deal with him and it led to a postnatal depression. I learned a lot about myself uh, in that period where, you know, you can be present but not engaged. Everybody is seeing you as the mother of this beautiful child and you, you're doing what you have to do. But uh, postnatal depressions are like any depression, uh, extremely debilitating and yet often not obvious. Was part of the journey to lifting yourself out of that or helping you move forward the entry into politics? No, no. Um, if you'd known my father uh, and also my sisters, I'm one of four, number two of four. And look, we were raised that um, leaders lead. Uh, things happen, but leaders then pick up what happens and make the best of it. And so there was a culture of opinion forming, the contest of ideas, and then action following. So the, the leadership intent that I had innately and developed just simply reoccurred in different settings. That event around Ben's birth, I had some learnings, but they were just part of a very large tapestry. That's really interesting. So you're saying that you had this innate desire or feeling that you had a leadership role? An expectation. expectation My father expected us to lead. I was raised in a manse and, you know, Sunday lunch would have anyone who my mother decided to bring home. And so leadership had many interpretations of you reach out, you step forward, you step up, you solve problems. And So did a young girl at that time believe that she could be Prime Minister? I, it didn't occur to me. I was not a child who grew up saying, I'm going to be Prime Minister. But I, every day I was a leader long before I went into politics. Did you smash the glass ceiling in the sense that you made it easier for Helen Clark to become Prime Minister? Or made it easier for other women to become Prime Minister, do you think? Oh, look, Kate Shepherd broke the, the first step insofar as she demanded we'd have a chance to vote. Marilyn Waring, I think, in the National Party broke a ceiling, and Ruth Richardson and I and other women in the party came through. I think from a leadership point of view, yes, you could say that having broken that glass ceiling, it was seen as not exceptional that Helen would follow and I hope others will follow again. But we stand on the shoulders of others. We, we don't do these things by ourselves. Jenny Shipley and her new husband, Burton, joined the National Party in the early 1970s and she won the safe national seat of Ash Burton in 1987 and entered Parliament even as National lost heavily to David Longy's Labour government. But three years and three Prime Ministers later, National won in a 76-seat landslide. Shipley, then 38 years old and a mother of two, became Minister of the country's highest spending ministry, Social Welfare. For me, it, it was it, being a mother and investing in that future had other dimensions as to why I came into politics. Uh, I was really anxious in the 80s that we were living in a debt-ridden and accumulating debt-ridden environment. And I couldn't see how the next generation of New Zealanders were going to have their fair chance if a group of political leaders didn't get hold of this. So it struck me that as a generation in our 30s and early 40s, we had to get New Zealand back on track, back into surplus, debt down, not one generation squandering the next generation's view. And that, that was very personal. So I would look at these two little people and think, 
actually, this matters, and I can make a difference by my being involved and bringing you know, what skills and, and leadership capability I have to those ideas. But her first years as minister were defined by a different kind of mother, Ruth Richardson's 1991 Mother of All Budgets, and National's mini-austerity budget immediately after the party took power. As Welfare Minister, Shipley delivered benefit cuts of up to 25%. Universal family benefits went all together. The age of entitlement to superannuation rose from 60 to 65. Newspapers said the welfare state was in tatters. I understand the headline. You may remember that I probably repeated at least 10,000 times in those first 100 days that you cannot have people uh, earning more on welfare than they're receiving in work because that imbalance had started to occur. And so we had to go back and carve all that, do the analysis of where the wages were, where the incremental nature of welfare had got to, and the age of superannuation. There were a group of things that we put on the table and then we decided to act. And so the idea behind it was, bluntly, that if we pay people too much in benefits, then they won't bother going out to look for work? No, look, the, the idea behind it was uh, we had been in deficit for 17 years and Hegel had told us in the then Labour government that we were heading towards surplus, which was patently a lie. And we had come in saying we are going to get New Zealand back, reducing the debt we've accumulated so generations of the future won't have their opportunity squandered and we're going to pay us our way. One appreciates the needs to balance the books, but what do you say to someone who would uh, uh, question why those with the least money had to bear such a, a, a burden? There was no question. It was a, a very difficult time. Every member of the Cabinet understood that. I walked with, with agencies that we worked with to help us make this work uh, because we did a whole series of things of far more support for budget advisory services. Mm -hmm. There was a plethora of interventions. Uh, and, and we knew that we were making a fundamental change to people's expectations. But leadership requires you to do that. I mean, where would New Zealand be today had we not made a whole series of decisions around, remember the labour market reform happened as well, the tax reform, the welfare reform. These were not in isolation. They were a package of changes that said to New Zealand, we are not in the, uh, the, the bassinet of Britain anymore. We have to grow up and stand alone. We can't squander a future generation's chance just because we're lazy or it's too hard. We can solve some of these problems, but it will, it will be difficult. But do you accept that it, it did increase inequality? And actually, that was, that's the point, is it not, that you've been getting at? That there, that there had to be an inequality between those who worked and those who didn't. Remember, the group of people on welfare and the numbers fell. So when you use the word inequality, there are many dimensions to this. We had very high unemployment. So it was a very difficult time, and unemployment went up even further as we made the economic adjustments to 12%. 12 but they then very rapidly came down again. So when you use the word inequality, you've got to look at who is where and whether or not the circumstances then make, sh make them think about taking action. I've had many families say it was very difficult. I've also had many families say I, I decided to go and 
go back to study because I realised it was now such a gap that I needed to earn more for my children and so I took personal action that delivered change. And that is what was needed. They needed a bit of a stick. Is that what you're saying? No, no, look, I'm, uh, let's not put words of history back into the frame. This was very well considered. It was very obvious that change was required. Uh, I think the, that history tells that we, we got far more people back into work. Uh, we had to wait through 91, we had to wait through 92, and the latter part of 92 and into 93, those numbers came down dramatically. We got ourselves so unpopular that only 17% of the public supported us at the crucial time of those changes. And if you were a thinking person at the end of 1991, you'd say, you are unelectable. And yet, we explained and explained and explained and worked our way through. And by 1993, certainly the majority was reduced, but the majority of New Zealanders felt we were moving in the right direction and re-elected that national government. So I guess what I'm saying to you is this would, no one found that easy. I can tell you that uh, there was no pleasure in being required to do the things that we did. And yet doing what is right to see New Zealand able to adapt through major global economic change, be growing at a rate much higher than others now, being far more agile when global pressure comes on because we did some fundamental things, which no government, Labour or National, changed fundamentally beyond that. That our Labour pillars, our tax pillars, our welfare pillars, while they evolve on the margin, this was a step change which has allowed us to be who we are today. And look, I can, we can argue the detail, but if you were to argue, ask me now, would we do it again? If we were faced with the same circumstances, we would of course do it again, because we had to do it again. I don't want my children or grandchildren to be living with less of an opportunity than they have now. So sometimes you have to do the hard thing which is right, not the mindless thing which may be popular, but actually is a terrible legacy to the next generation. I'm glad, even if it's a difficult set of headlines that I have to live with, that I did the right thing. I don't want my grandchildren to be burdened with debt or uh, think that my generation was selfish and left them to do with less. How much of those welfare reforms were driven by you and how much by Ruth Richardson? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that people want to poke the torch at the, the girls in the family? Oh no, um, just, you were the, she was the finance minister and she held the purse strings. I'm wondering, uh, you were the portfolio minister mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what... We, look, we, let's, let's start back where we... We, 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 we were a cabinet. I, I haven't signalled out the two of you. No, no, well, it's interesting. Yeah, if you I go can. back and look at the commentary, maybe I um, the, the, the lazy rhetoric actually almost gravitated. Do you, do you feel that way? No, no, it's an observation. Yeah. It didn't stop either Ruth or I. But we were such a novelty... And, and look, if you look at the language, you know, men are bold, women are vindictive. I'm not telling you that it, it's hurtful. I'm telling you it's an observation. Helen Clark and I could give you the long list of counterpoints that how people described both of us compared with our peers. So coming back to your question. No, it's a valid... No, well, we can stick there. I mean, it's, is it a valid... Well, is it a valid question? Maybe it's not. It tells me more about other people than myself. So again, it, it, it's an interesting observation, but it wasn't the defining issue.
The defining issues were the circumstances, what we'd promised, what we were confronted with, what we then determined we would do. The Cabinet didn't say, oh dear, this is too hard. Jim Bolger and the team said, this is hard, but we will work this out. So we set a 100-day framework. Ruth, of course, was the Finance Minister. But look, no one of us acted alone in this. Let's, ad let's address that, um, that question about... Um, whether Jim Bolger, I guess, was fully on board with what were quite radical and, and quite um, challenging decisions. Was, was, he, was he on board there or did he need prodding? No, no, he was on board. My memory of that first uh, Cabinet meeting was he, it was extremely decisive, both in his describing the reality of what he'd been briefed on and his determination to work out a way to deliver the intention of our programme, even if it had to be done differently. I think he wrestled with every decision on the degree to which it broke promises. And that broken promise uh, sort of call did cripple him uh, personally. And, uh, he found it wounding because he is a person of integrity and didn't like having to have made that call. So I think I, I watched him struggle through that journey, but he always went in the favour in the end of, but we have to move on and we have to move forward and we can't do things that we clearly can't do. Did you anticipate how deeply unpopular those moves were going to be? Again, they were unpopular. I'm not disputing that. Uh, but we did not poll every five minutes. We, we sat and, as a group of leaders, uh, considered what was right for New Zealand. And uh, so I, I despair in the fact that, uh, you know, everybody's trying to work out what's popular. Look, if you've got a tailwind, good on them. I would do that too. We had a roaring gale headwind and we were working out how to navigate it. So let's not pretend this is like for like. Uh, we were trying to solve a problem that was fundamental, that gives New Zealand the choices it enjoys today. Some people may have felt that you were judging them, that there was a message that um, you're not working hard enough or we're paying you too much. So It's interesting that people attribute every aspect to both the decision and the belief associated with that decision to an individual. Frankly, that's ignorant nonsense. That's not how cabinets work. That's not how decision-making around what's good and right for a country works. While people's um, value judgments are brought to bear as the ideas are being contested, you know, it sh some of it in its multiplicity shapes those conclusions. It's way too flattering to say that, you know, whether it's the Ruths or I, people like myself, forced it on to folk. I mean, honestly, are you seriously saying that such a dictatorial role could happen in a democracy like this? I can tell you it can't and it didn't. You will have critics, though, who say that those decisions did not take enough account of the impact on individuals, for example, when cutting welfare payments. Look, I, I know that's what was said at the time. And I say back to those individuals, are the choices that we've got today across our society for both the people most needing support, do they get it? And was it changed? You know, judge me on the outcomes. We are a more independent nation. We are a more inclusive nation. The gap between the right and the left is much closer, and I take some pride in that, because as a leader, I coached and coaxed my own party into a position where we were fiscally responsible and socially inclusive. That's a huge outcome 
to be able to offer a nation and it's made us much more resilient than we would otherwise have been. So I'm proud to have been in that role. You can pick individual things and you're right to raise them. I look at it in the context of why I went there, what I did and what the outcomes are. No one changed the things that you quite correctly refer to were hard on individuals at the time. And they were hard on the ministers at the time. They were hard on other taxpayers at the time. Were they the right thing to do? History will judge. In 1993, it was voters that got to judge and their verdict was harsh. National clung to power with a one-seat majority. Prime Minister Jim Bolger cut his cloth to fit and that meant cutting Richardson and reining in the reforms. It was something akin to David Longy's cup of tea, but it left Shipley frustrated. There were still things that, that I think we would have loved to have done. Um, and certainly the caucus, and in particular the cabinet, um, at that time became much more stressed around whether we would get elected. And there's no question, some of our senior ministers and marginal seats became uh, very frenetic about their own interests against the, the direction of travel of the government. And um, uh, it broke my heart that um, that cohesion that had been in the early part of that cabinet was not able to be maintained. And that was because of fear creeping in. Bluntly, oh, of pragmatism and populism. But look, I'm not going to point the bone at people. You know, these cycles are what they are. And if you look at it in its totality, uh, it was the right thing to do. It delivered massive results. Uh, the cup of tea was not, it wasn't exactly that. It was, uh, you know, the needs of a few who were influential. And I remembered their names. And when I became the leader, uh, I made sure that I had people around me who I knew where they would be on those days of, of important judgment. When you say you remember their names, you remember the names of the people who did what? Oh, who found it too difficult and uh, were very determined to both undermine and compromise and step back. But you were of the belief that Ruth Richardson should have continued? Was that no, no, look, belief? Ruth, Ruth I, I was deeply disappointed. She was changed. Why was why? Because she's outstanding. It just it interests me because it says something about you <clears> as a, as a politician that while Jim Bolger got a fright and thought, and of course I'm, this is shorthand, but <laughs> we, look, it's never as simple as that for we, Jess. No, but <laughs> but we nearly lost. We need to pull back, right? And, and it's and, his prerogative. And, and she was a casualty of that. Whereas it seems to me you would have said. Let's keep on going. Well, you know, we nearly lost against we won. It depends. I'm a, I'm a half-full person, not a half-empty person by nature. So I'm probably reckless in that regard insofar as I'll manage the risk, but I'm not preoccupied by risk. What do you mean by that? Look, in this world, you have to have a risk appetite, which each of us chooses. And I'm not just a safe pair of hands. You know, I didn't come into politics to just put a stamp anywhere. I, I, my motivation was creating a future that was different. My energy then and now is uh, to shape the future. Do we still have too much middle class welfare in your view? Of course. Student allowances are a good example at the moment where a, a generous definition of income allows people who are well organised to still have their children receive student allowances when they can clearly, compared with others, 
afford to go to university. I find that morally bankrupt, that we don't honestly have that discussion. I feel sick every time I go to the doctor, that I still get subsidised and I can't opt out of the system. Now that's wrong. I was trying to take the welfare state off the middle class. The middle class has had and continues to capture a welfare state that was never designed for them. And the courage of those conversations in the 1990s, and indeed I see, thankfully, the government raising some issues today, which are proper, that we should have a discussion. I don't expect a hard-working family with very modest income to pay tax to support things that I should expect to do for myself. You feel very strongly about this, though, don't you? You feel that quite passionately that an overabundance of a welfare state is a corrosive thing. No, I don't think that. If you've got assets, why don't you use them first before you ask your neighbour? You know, if you've got income, why don't you use it first before you put your hand in the pocket of someone else? This is not an ideology. This is social fairness. And then we come into the period in the lead-up to MMP and the first MMP government. Um, you were always opposed to MMP. Oh, a lot of us were opposed, and yes, I was. Still? No. Really? I think it's an essential part of who we are now, and I do not believe it will be changed. That's really interesting. You, you've changed your mind on very little that we've talked about uh, today. No, no, look, I Did often you... change my mind. I mean, if, if, if I think that something is better than the alternative, um, then I'm happy to say you know, I was either wrong or, as we've learnt through both my own experience in managing both a coalition and a minority government, and remember in the very short time I was Prime Minister, I had both experiences, and then I've observed the evolution of both Helen Clark as Prime Minister and then John Key as Prime Minister, in the way in which they have adapted and the Cabinet rules have been able to evolve, and the New Zealand public are allowed to pick a main course, so to speak, and then flair and flavour. I mean, how lucky are we? Does MMP reduce the power <clears throat> of a Prime Minister? No. It requires additional skills uh, for the uh, Prime Minister, but it doesn't reduce. The first MMP election in October 1996 certainly tested the skills of those seeking to lead. New Zealand First was the kingmaker, and Jim Bolger was able to do a surprise deal with Winston Peters to keep National in power. But sharing power wasn't easy, and national MPs quickly became restless. As coalition tensions grew, they turned to Shipley. In early 1997, I knew where the majority of the caucus was, not because I'd solicited uh, their interest, but because the conversation was simply so alive. In the Easter of 1997, I knew I had the numbers to make a change when required. Really? Uh, certainly. And so it led Burton and I to a rather extraordinary conversation that I, I said, look, I need to talk about it. I'm not prepared to commit unless this family really knows what this means. Because I, I can tell you it is not a doddle being Prime Minister. My children were still at secondary school and at university and I was very aware uh, of both my history and what they'd already been through. And I wanted to test whether they had the appetite. So we spent the Easter of 1997 um, with a conversation that was exceptional. I said, look, I want you to understand that 
there's every chance I will be Prime Minister, could be Prime Minister, by the end of the year, because we talked about the two-year window and change and all of the things that make elections work, and there'd been a lot of discussion in the caucus on timing and optimum timing and carry on. But I, I made it clear that they needed to understand the unintended consequences. So it was a, an exceptional conversation. And to my great pride, uh, the three of them understood then as they had before that a lot of the things we were going to try and do uh, would be for their generation and their children's. And they took a lot on the chin as young people because they understood the mission. And um, they do today. So this was an extraordinarily planned and thought out process, wasn't it? You knew that long in advance that... I hadn't decided at that Easter. You hadn't decided. I had not decided. As the clock ticked, Shipley continued to wrestle with herself over what to do. Um, uh, one of my brave decisions was to say yes to uh, challenging for the leadership. There were a lot of other things that I had to weigh up. And I was extremely mindful of them. The impact on family? Well, it, uh, I'm not sure if I should uh, give an illustration, uh, but, but one, I remember one particular time, our son Ben uh, was about uh, 12 or 13, and so it must have been at the time that I was welfare minister, and uh, we were in Ashburton, I'd been in Christchurch at some event at, at the cathedral, interestingly, and I, we arrived home with my DPS contingent and everybody and walked in and the children were in the, the dining room and the television was on. And we had had a very difficult day um, of protests and so on. And um, we're gathering around the television as leaders are wont to do at six o'clock or were. Um, and uh, some politicians who are still, interestingly, at the forefront of the protest movement, uh, it was very vicious. So kill Shipley, kill, these sort of slogans and things. And Ben, I, I remember him being physically alarmed. And um, I was alarmed because, or anx deeply anxious, um, uh, when I saw his reaction. And one of the leading DPS people who was with me, I said quietly to him, you know, uh, uh, Ben turned round after watching this and was quite uh, rigid in his little face. And he's a very able and relaxed boy. And he said to this guy, will you look after my mummy? It's enough to break your heart. And it wasn't because I was at risk, but his anxiety. It was a lovely Canterbury evening, and um, if you know Canterbury well, as the sun gets low, it, it, our garden, it was a golden space, and there was a very large um, elm that hung itself across the lawn. And after we had had dinner, um, he, the children went out. Ben expected all the DPS and everyone to play cricket, and you know, as one does in those evenings. And he, he, the, this leader said to me, don't worry, Jenny, I'll take care of this. So I remember watching him take his jacket off and peel his hardware off and hang it in this tree and let Ben see and said, don't worry, Ben, we'll look after your mummy. Now, um, those are hard moments for a woman leader. They are the hardest moments uh, when you think, is it worth it? Uh, and you understand the protesters' right to protest. Some of it was what it was. Some of it, in my opinion, was very excessive. But protesters need to understand the unintended consequences of what they say.
But as Shipley was weighing her options, Jim Bolger called her to a meeting asking her to make a public statement that she would not challenge him. In our caucus, I was being absolutely approached and pressed as to would I take over the leadership and in the party. When would this happen? How would it happen? So when Jim said to me, you know, would I make a public statement? I said, look, Jim, in the end, you and I have to act in the best interests of the party. And I can't say that to you now and then go and change if change were to occur. What I can promise you is that I will not be out there undermining you. He must have been disappointed, though, that you weren't able to give him that commitment. I said to him, Jim, you know I can't do that. And uh, I, I, I'm sure he was disappointed. Um, but uh, look, we both understood uh, what it meant to try and work in the best interests of the party. And so your team of supporters, Tony Ryle and Peter Gresham and Bob Simcock Why and Creech. Creech, they set about making this happen. Um, and it's, it's almost like something out of a spy novel, isn't it? They have a a folder and a Tapuki bypass on it was their code word. These things are done in quite a sort of Byzantine way, I guess. It wasn't so much secretive as kept under control. I mean, none of us were going to do this in a way that would disrupt the party. I was very clear with people. I mean, I'm, I, this was not a, necessarily about me. This was about how do we continue with our ability to guide New Zealand forward without a big hiccup. And so, you know, you make these decisions in context. It was very successfully executed, wasn't it? Uh, the way in which we did it, I invited in the end when it was a decision to go, and it was over several days, some of which Jim was out of the country. Uh, and we had a very simple form where members who wanted to say that they were committed to voting for a change of leadership, it was four lines, I promised that I would never disclose who was on that list, uh, and that they would be destroyed. And I've kept my word on that, but I clearly had a majority. And so in November 1997, Shipley made her choice and her move. Two years out from the election, Jim Bolger returned from Europe to be told that a coup was underway. And on December 8, New Zealand had its first woman prime minister. At the moment when that change occurred, it was there's been a change of prime minister and a change of agenda and uh, can this defy the nine-year rule from a national party point of view. So there were a series of far more focused matters. What is it like to become a prime minister when you're elected by the caucus, which is effectively what you were, rather than the country? Mm -hmm. oh, look, it's, it, it's a change for New Zealand, but all leaders are elected by their caucuses or the party, whatever the instrument of a, a leadership election is, um, that does happen in that system. The transition of no election with a leadership change was a first. And by the way, in, in global MMP settings, it's common. And so I think we will make it, become used to it in the future, possibly, uh, within transitions, uh, although it was a first for us here. Did Winston Peters threatened to pull the plug on the coalition at that point. Uh, he raised the question. Did you allow yourself even a moment of celebration and pride when you of got course. the job? Of course. Of do, you, course. do you remember that feeling? I've got some lovely photos of buried in clouds of flowers and surrounded by people I love. And, um, you know, particularly when I was sworn in, uh, my darling late mother and my three sisters 
uh, there's a powerful picture, which I hope will be valued more in the future for its historic nature, that a, a girl in a family of four girls with parents who adored us and said girls could lead found her way to be the first woman Prime Minister of New Zealand. And that, that picture to me was an immense moment of importance and a, a, um, a precious moment of our values as a family and the way in which leaders step up and do what they can. Did it excite you? Uh, it did excite me, but again, they were difficult times immediately, so remember the times. Uh, in, a, in a perfect world, this would have been a massive celebration and, uh, you know, the tailwinds I'd hoped for. Uh, but most of my exacting political career in the roles I've had have been when either the country or the, the area of responsibility has been tested. And perhaps that is the gift and skill I brought uh, to my, my political time that I was able to pick things up and find a way through. It just strikes me now, you're an anti-populist in a way, aren't you? I'm not an anti-populist. I'm a person who went into politics to make change, not be popular. If you can do both, it's highly desirable. And if I have any regrets, it's, it's in that period, or particularly when I was Prime Minister, where I was so focused on we cannot slip back into deficit and, and into a no-growth environment. And so I was prepared again to cut expenditure and do the tough things and delivered heaven, Helen Clark, you know, 4% plus growth rate and a surplus again and was not in government. So you could say I failed on the populist test, but for me, I succeeded in doing what was right for New Zealand. Did you ever do anything that was populist? Oh, I'm sure I did. I'm not that puritanical. Um, but the minute you are Prime Minister and in government, you are governing for all New Zealanders regardless of how they voted. And in particular when you come to these crunch points of who is this holding back? Who is this impacting on? Almost always they are not going to win a popular vote. They are minorities. And yet just because we're white and middle class, female or male, doesn't mean our view has to be imposed on those, whether they're people who are Maori, Pacific, migrant, gay, uh, other. I want a society that's safe for difference, where we are fresh, invigorated, and value each other, and have a place to stand. A an inclusive but open society where the rule of law is defined, but please get on with your life, and we'll tax you fairly, but you should spend your money as you see fit because you know better than us what to do. You mentioned uh, the gay community. You uh, were a pretty strong advocate for a Prime Minister in those days of, of the gay community. I was. You went to the Hero Parade, I think the first Prime Minister to do so. Well, look, symbolism does, does matter. And there's an interesting personal story behind it. A close family um, to my mother and father had a, a, this eldest son, who, who jumped off the Auckland Harbour Bridge. And it was only many years afterward that I was, had explained to me what we think was in his mind uh, that led to that event. And I f formed the conclusion that no family should be left uh, not being able to be open about the um, sexual orientation of a child and, and no child should be left uh, so isolated that they can't speak about that, that they would contemplate taking their own life. And I tried to stand in that circumstance, not my own 
do I believe or not believe in this, um, as I formed a judgment. And look, social inclusion is so important. Respecting our differences and, and being a country that's safe for difference mattered enormously to me. So deciding as a national party leader that I was not going to pass judgment and that notwithstanding our members' own views, that this was one of very few things that should be personal. What did your cabinet colleagues say when you told them? <laughs> It was the caucus, actually. Was it? They both were lively conversations. But those are moments where, as leader, you say, look, uh, I appreciate your points of view, but this is what I'm going to do. At first, the new Shipley government got a bump in the polls, even as the Asian financial crisis sank its claws into the New Zealand economy, national MPs were telling each other they'd done the right thing in switching leaders. Oh, look, and, and they had. <laughs> uh, but, but history conspired against us. Uh, the weighty things were the Timor-Leste's and they were the, the crisis again and um, the financial crisis again. I thought, really? You know, am I going to have to relive this uh, all over again? You did. You did. And let's discuss those, the Asian crisis and the response to that. Um, the response was privatisation of contact energy to try to balance the books, I guess, to a degree. There was trimming of government spending again. Do you think you got those directions and decisions right, or was that not the right response to an economic crisis? Well, look, you could view it two ways. Um, either fortuitously or stupidly, I d and the government at the time did what we did, and Helen Clark uh, inherited one of the highest levels of growth New Zealand had seen. Over 4% growth when she came into office as Prime Minister. And it was a result of getting spending back into control quickly. The private sector immediately responded, seeing there's more opportunity for us. It's quite clear the direction of travel. We're going to be back in to the economy in a meaningful way. When you get that balance right, they invest. If they're not sure of the public policy, they sit off. And so we got that very strong thrust. On the other hand, you could argue, uh, having done the right thing, it, you know, I won the battle and lost the war. Uh, and by doing a lot, and I remember Treasury saying to me, Jenny, you do not have to pull the levers as hard as you did in the early 90s. While this is an event, it is not as significant as the early 90s, so they are important but not equal in comparison. And on reflection, you know, would I do it differently? I, I don't spend time trying to rewrite history. But you could have argued that I could have taken a longer runway view that might have got us through with a, a softer curve and maybe we would have won the election. So on reflection, you might have done it differently. You might have, you might have um, not pulled the brake on so hard, if you like. Well, it's one of the options on reflection I could have taken a different view. But I don't spend time lamenting that. I think that we underestimated how resilient the New Zealand economy had become. So many of the changes between 90 and 96 had actually, on reflection, created far more resilience so that when these events happened, we fell less far and recovered more quickly. And actually, we did come out of it quicker than my advisers were predicting once we had taken those decisions. 
While the Asian crisis created problems, the 1999 Asia-Pacific Economic Summit provided perhaps Shipley's greatest triumph as Prime Minister. She was the first woman to chair an APEC leaders' meeting when heavyweights such as Bill Clinton and Jiang Zemin came to Auckland that September. But as leaders from 21 economies gathered, it wasn't trade capturing attention, but war in East Timor. This is a courageous decision, it's an essential decision by the way, that a UN force goes in and assists the people of East Timor. It is I think a victory for both political and international diplomacy that we have got to this point. I think between Don McKinnon and I, um, if I may say so, it was one of the most masterful um, exercises in politics or political management. Remember APEC cannot have political issues on its agenda. I think it was the Sunday night I listened to the news and that church had been burnt down. I remember ringing my officials and saying, please be in my office in the morning. Uh, and I just knew we could not get through uh, uh, APEC without thinking about how we would deal with this. And it's a long story which we don't have time for now, but it was an important story of Don saying, well, let's do it with foreign ministers prior to APEC and see if we can get agreement I remember my call to Habibi. I held the phone out and everyone else in the room could hear him uh, very angrily telling me why we should not be doing this and my explaining that a number of leaders worldwide now felt we had to. And Anyway, by the eve of APEC, he had been on CNN saying he would allow a UN force into Timor, but it was only the beginning of what was a very complex deployment. New Zealand sent a battalion of um, um, our capability there to assist. It was a very significant and most significant deployment that any Prime Minister had had to make for a very long time. Yeah. What's that like as a leader? You're, affected, you're sending people into a war zone. It's the hardest thing you do. I remember both seeing them off and looking into the eyes of the family who, to be fair, they know that's what they're signing up for. It was one of the weights one carries and I felt it personally and even though we had we, we lost a young man through a road accident there I felt you know, I went to his funeral even though I was no longer Prime Minister I felt it permanently for them and the the contribution they make to the freedom you and I take for granted so that was one of the hardest things you, you had to do as Prime it's, Minister? It's a very meaningful thing you do uh, in deciding who to send and what scale the US was saying the burden sharing has to be a reality, please step up. Australia didn't believe we would do anything. I can still remember my call to John Howard uh, after Cabinet decided it would be a, a, a battalion, not a company. And I said, we will contribute a battalion. I remember him saying, a battalion. And I said, yes, a battalion. And he said, a battalion. And I had to repeat it. But actually it was an important time because then I wanted to see where the New Zealand's armed services were capable of things other than peacekeeping. This was a serious peacemaking prior to peacekeeping exercise and we had not been in a situation where we had been able to really test a broad range of our capability other than the SAS or others which we had deployed during the 90s. And so it was a good test both short and long term for New Zealand's capability to defend itself and its interests to make a contribution to stability in the region and to be taken seriously by our partners.
Amidst the diplomatic tensions, trade was still on the agenda as the US and China jockeyed for position. New Zealand officials and the Prime Minister were stretched. I can tell you our wheels were spinning. It was a great success for New Zealand though, I think in positioning trade and our commitment to why markets work, both for economies like ours and, and others, and it began the long journey of TPP as a first step with Singapore and New Zealand and Chile agreeing to try and say to others, if we can't do WTO, let's join and move ahead. So you, you feel that that was the start of TPP? You feel that you actually kick-started TPP? Oh, it's not, I, it's not a question of do I think. It, it's absolutely what happened. If you ask Sir Martin Weavers and others who were in the room at the time, uh, with each of the leaders, uh, when we said, well, why can't WTO work? Uh, was there an appetite and were we willing? And uh, both the FTA with China was also initiated during that set of visits that then led to what Helen Clark and the government uh, moved forward. So, so is that right? So at that 1999 APEC, both the TPP and the New Zealand-China FTA were initiated? They had their genesis there and also the resolution of China joining the WTO, along with Timor-Leste and the intervention there. So these were four huge um, events that were right around plus three state visits. It sounds absurd. If I were writing it down now, I personally wouldn't believe it. But it was an amazing period. Yet as Shipley's star shone on the world stage at home, it had been dimming. Winston Peters had signed the coalition agreement with Jim Bolger and their relationship was close. But Shipley had said she wouldn't run the country over a whiskey bottle and vowed a different approach to New Zealand first. Winston could have been Prime Minister for, about for want of himself. His complexity uh, often got ahead of his capability. And... Um, Watching him, look, on a good day, he was brilliant. If I was honest with you, I would say perhaps more than most, he was um, a sort of an 85% outstanding leader. And the 15% absolutely crippled him because he would get so myopically preoccupied with a diversion that it took away his capability and intent on the main goal, being the leader of the National Party, which he could have been being a, a Prime Minister if he had navigated differently, uh, achieving things that he really wanted to do. Uh, but sometimes his just uh, temptation to be distracted that literally absorbed him. Um, and it, it was great news, by the way. You folk fell for it. And, and the, people like me just kept doing the work. Frustrating to deal with? He was extremely capable, although sometimes would get diverted. And I would make a personal judgment as he came into my office as to whether the envelope with the papers in it was either open or closed. And it often would tell me the extent to which he had either read what we were then going to discuss. And I, I look, I learnt to both respect and manage it. And on those days, the meetings were short because clearly it was a train wreck waiting to happen. And the train wreck wasn't long in coming. Having already sold its stake in Auckland International Airport, the national-led government also wanted to sell its share in Wellington Airport. Winston Peters decided that was a bridge too far. At a cabinet meeting on the 12th of August 1998, the Deputy Prime Minister and Treasurer of New Zealand led a cabinet walkout. We were well through a sales process. Winston as Treasurer had led that on behalf of the government, the, the coalition government at the time. Uh, we were 
in an international environment, an advanced stage, and a, a series of statements were made, uh, which were clearly uh, not in New Zealand's interest. And it led to a set of events, uh, both in, in Cabinet, a uh, walkout from Cabinet. Uh, Winston, I think, assumed that I would come running after him, and I didn't, uh, because I think the integrity of the Cabinet process has got to uh, stand itself. Uh, as he left, others didn't go with them. So it was a complex environment. Was it a volatile Cabinet meeting, or was it simply a walkout? Uh, it was a highly contested set of views, but it had been building up, so it wasn't unanticipated. And um, I think it was well understood by both groups uh, as to what was at stake there. Uh, there was polling going on that I think had unsettled uh, New Zealand First at that time against the long-term benefits of keeping New Zealand's reputation as a good place to do business. Was he looking for an excuse, do you believe, in hindsight, to, to walk away from the coalition? You could argue that there had been a series of things mounting that no coalition partner or partners would hope to have confronted them. I didn't want that to happen. He didn't want that to happen. Uh, but I think there was a point at which his desire to govern and take New Zealand forward through a very difficult time as his desire, against his desire to survive a 1999 election became a tipping point question for him. So keeping the reality of our circumstances stable, I had to ring Winston in the end and say that I was uh, asking the Governor-General to remove his warrant which is, uh, focuses my mind. Um, he chose not to take my call for quite um, some time, and um, in the end I uh, instructed or, or conveyed my request to the Governor-General. I, I, he was told by a third party I had attempted over and over again. Pretty high stakes. Well, look, you know, I had a majority of one with Winston, and I thought I was going to the country as I triggered the arrangements because I couldn't see how I would necessarily get necessarily get through and blow me down uh, within 18 hours um, I had a majority of two not one so ACT came and said we will support the government had not up until then done so and wanted to come into a minority government arrangement a part of New Zealand first came through and so we had a group now I still had the choice although it was a harder thing to explain to a governor-general when you have a majority why you're calling an election but I had people literally writing down, we will support your government. Um, I called in the then governor of the Reserve Bank, Don Brash, and sought his advice, not on politics, on uh, the context and resilience of the economy, which was just starting to turn in late 1998. And so the very early signs of growth um, and their predictions, if you look at the monetary policy statements, start showing that projected track, which in fact exceeded their predictions, so we'd got the turn. But he said, and I remember it well, that I needed to think about the extent to which an election could create a setback for that growth trajectory against politically managing. And on balance, over two nights, I chewed away at how I would manage this and tested whether I thought um, the arrangements that had been offered to me were robust and able to still have a program. So I said, look, if, we, if, if we're staying in, we're staying in to move ahead. And so Toe and his group and others uh, very clearly said, we want to govern well for the right reasons. And the rest is history. In hindsight, should you have gone to the country? Look, I, 
If I'd gone to the country, I think we would have won. If you look at the polls at the time and the appetite at the time, did I do the right thing? I did the right thing. In those acute moments, when you hear leaders describe the loneliness of the aspect of that role, it's, it's not so much um, lonely because you've got brilliant people around you, but in the end, that's when you know where you have to live and die with the decisions you take. And I don't regret um, taking that decision for New Zealand. Could Jenny Shipley have survived and had a, a fresh term? I would have loved that chance. Goodness knows, I would have loved the chance from 19, uh, 2000 through 2002 to leave New Zealand. Not as many and, headwinds. Well, it would have been, I mean, I'd created a tailwind that someone else inherited. And so Clark had a very, very um, positive money to spend, um, growth, even higher than we've got now. So, you know, very important to remember that that was our gift, but a political loss. To me, by the way, that's success. The political loss came at the 1999 election. Voters punished New Zealand first and, to a lesser extent, national, as Helen Clark's Labour Party came to power. Shipley carried on leading national until October 2001, when Bill English grabbed power in a coup, just as she had grabbed power from Jim Bolger in 1997. I did my best, I did my share, and I didn't define it as defeat or failure. Yes, the electors uh, said the next group would take the lead, and I respect that, but I do not view it as a failure. I just view it as the end of a period. And just to go back, I remember saying to the children at that Easter, that, by the way, the minute we start this journey, it is the beginning of the end of my political career. The minute you become leader, you do your best for as long as you're given the opportunity, and then you, because it's your obligation, make the set of adjustments needed. And so I, when I was defeated, maintained that period in, in opposition, and, you know, I, would I have liked to have continued and fought the next election, and could we have won? I was exhausted by the time uh, I stepped down or, or Bill English stepped up. On reflection, it was the right time for me. And I made my own decisions, 15 years in Parliament, 11 none of them, Minister, Prime Minister, Leader of the Opposition. Had I made a difference? I hope so. Had I done my best? Certainly. In the end, history will judge uh, what that means. How has it changed you being Prime Minister? I don't know if it has, really. I often say to people, the Prime Ministership doesn't define Jenny Shipley. It's something I did, as I, as I did as Ministers, and it is a cloak I wore and a responsibility I held, but my leadership intent and purpose and style remains. I simply apply it to different circumstances. An absence of self-doubt? Oh, I've got self-doubt. Every leader has Self-doubt. Are you worthy? Should you be in this role? And your greatest regret? Um, oh, <laughs> I don't spend time dealing with regrets. Uh, had I gone to the country, what would have happened? But honestly, I don't, I, it does not keep me awake at night. And it's not a regret. It's a, a reflection on was it an opportunity missed against doing the right thing. And on balance, I will rock in my chair and probably still, rightly or wrongly, be comfortable that, mm, but. 
Jenny Shipley retired from politics in 2002 and is now Dame Jenny Shipley, a company director and member of international think tanks. In her words, she remains a leader every day. There are always steps that must be taken in the time and we build on the shoulders of others, good and bad, to try and improve our societies in which we live. I am proud that we did our best in the circumstances in, we found, in which we found ourselves to do things that will allow others to stand on the shoulders of that generation and they can judge us as they like. I went into politics not to be a status quo politician but to be a change agent. I did what I could. I think I made a difference in a number of places. And as I watch now, I like the inclusive New Zealand I see. Uh, the world is much better if we're generous with each other. And that's the view I have and continue to take.